What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to episode... Well, that was a little little, uh, overly enthusiastic. Welcome to episode 618 with my buddy Chris Chow. I am Paul Gilmartin. Maybe I'm excited about Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't think there's a chance of that. Uh, This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional counseling. I am not a therapist, and I think that's usually clear after about a minute or two. Um... Are you ready? Are you ready for the triumvirate, the the Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, New Year's, the Holy Trinity, the shit show known as November and December? I don't know why I have always, there's always been a lack of excitement about that for me. And I don't know if it goes back to, you know, that my family life growing up, or if I'm just not a traditional person, but I don't know, I always feel this sense of obligation. It always feels like a a minor version of helping somebody move. Anyway, let's dive into some some surveys. And speaking of surveys, um, you know, one of the ways, if you enjoy this podcast, and even if you don't, one of the ways you can help it is by going uh, to our website and filling out our surveys. Uh, I especially enjoy when people fill out the happy moments or the loves surveys or the awfulsome moments. Any of them are great, but those in particular. Um, anyway, and our website is mentalpod.com. Uh, Mentalpod also is a social media handle that you can follow us at. Also, if uh, I like home just all of a sudden, I've gone into needy, needy mode. Uh, I lo- I've launched a um it's not a website yet but it's a couple of social media handles for the cynical satirical kind of angry unhealed comedic part of my brain um and the social media handle for those posts are uh, under dumb pile that's d-u-m-b-p-i-l-e and it's like satirical headlines uh like fake wikipedia um entries um, famous people's to-do lists. Um, anyway, yeah, it's almost the polar opposite uh, of of what this show is. There's not a lot of acceptance 
in that part of it. But it's a, it's a comedic part of my brain that brings me a lot of pleasure exercising. Because uh, we're all complex. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. Filled out by a guy who calls himself Lou Spowles. And he says, uh, what are your criteria criteria for selecting guests and what kind of things do you avoid? There are people whom I enjoy hearing uh, and I would love to hear them as a guest, but not sure if they'd be suitable or not for what you're looking for in interviewees. I wouldn't say there's one particular thing. Variety is important for me, uh, not only of, of people's challenges, but a variety of um, cultures, uh, genders, um, uh, experiences. Um, and, and I think I look for every episode to have something about it that's either helpful or compelling or entertaining or hopefully all three. Um, so, you know, it's... I don't know if I can put it into words. That's the best. That's the best way that I can. I can describe it, and I do like to do it in person. And I record in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I had to do Zoom during the pandemic, and I'm I'm just that is a last resort that I do not like to have to uh, go to. This is from the body shame survey filled out by a trans man uh, who calls himself Joe. And he writes, I like that to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? He writes, I like that I feel the most comfortable I've ever felt in my body now that I've been on hormones for years and I was able to have top surgery. What I struggle with is bittersweet, of course. I feel so in the middle, having a vagina and feeling like a man but also socialized as a woman for 30 years. I sometimes have sexual fantasies about being both a penis-having person and also a vagina-having person, a top and a bottom, both masculine and feminine sexual norms. I find this very confusing and also realize that I may never find a partner. Yet the sweetness is, again, I finally feel comfortable. That comfort comes with isolation and a lack of intimacy in my life. I suppose this is the part of the sadness of being trans in our culture. I know there are people out there who find my body attractive, but it is rare. I've thought about sex work so that I can have intimacy, but it may be the only way to find it. I enjoy passion and intimacy and care within an anonymous setting, and it is fitting considering my difficulty with attachment. Of course, I am imagining a safe, privileged version of sex work, which I have no idea how to navigate. I simply miss touch and intimacy, and I wish I could retire this longing. You know, uh, it's ironic that I read this right after that that question because this is an example of a, a person that I think would be a great guest on the podcast. And Joe, if you're listening and you're in Los Angeles or you plan to get to Los Angeles, I would like to uh, talk with you some more um, because, as as you guys know, the, the trans community um, are up against a lot. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, I have a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say misunderstandings, but blind spots um, and areas that where I just I'd like to learn more, and I think it's it's um, 
I think they are compelling conversations and you seem, you seem like a cool guy. Um, and I, I like this, I like this survey. I love stuff where it's bittersweet because isn't so much of life in that range. The push and the pull and the, you know, the brain's way of wanting to categorize something as good or bad when it's so rarely one or the other. Um, anyway, thank you for your, your survey, Joe. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, I feel icky and have trouble trusting people. Well, buddy, let's start a support group. Oni, he, uh, what gender do you identify with? And he writes, meat popsicle. Uh, what would you like to ask Paul? Hi, Paul. You've mentioned support groups a few times on the podcast, and I wondered what, if any experience you've had with people who seemingly take over groups to feed their need to feel in control of others and or at the center of everything, and how did you deal with it? And um, he, he, there's more to this survey, but I'll just kind of condense it by uh, saying he's talking about support groups and um, somebody coming in that's a narcissist and who begins to kind of cross boundaries and really push people's buttons and tries to take charge and very often has no idea that they are subjecting people to their control issues. And on the plus side, it is an opportunity for the other people in the support group to practice speaking up for themselves, for establishing boundaries, uh, to begin to understand, in essence, the serenity prayer when it comes to another person. What do I have control over and what do I need to let go of? And it can be a great um, opportunity to work on that skill. That being said, it fucking sucks when somebody comes in. And I have left specific meetings because of toxic people that I just couldn't take anymore. And the thing that he is having trouble with is it's the only in-person meeting in his area. So I would recommend finding some online, some Zoom uh, support group meetings. And I know it's it's not as good as an in-person one, but um, I have seen meetings literally empty over a six-month period by a person who is sick. And I I also try to use it as an opportunity to not give in to hating and resenting that person, but saying, what are my options? My options are to either accept that person as they are, speak up when my boundaries are crossed, or choose to not come into contact with them by either keeping my mouth shut or going to other meetings. But it's a hard one, man. It is a hard one. But like everything, there's also this kind of good side to it that it's you know it's it is a tool for spiritual strengthening uh there are people who become our spiritual gym and they don't even know it this episode is sponsored by better help online therapy i've been using better help for six years i uh, love the relationship i have with my therapist heidi 
She, uh, she gives me great perspectives on the things that I am struggling with. Sometimes the struggles are big. Sometimes they're, they're little and it's just little adjustments and tweaking. And I, I got to be honest, since I started, uh, um, or should, should I say since I've given up video games uh, about uh, six months ago, uh, I feel like I'm really uh, thriving, but there's still a part of my brain that wants to look at everything negatively, and it helps to have her perspective for that. And I think that's one of the things that's great about therapy is, you know, our brains don't come with a user manual, and I think therapy can be a great way to uh, break out that manual and help us understand what's going on inside our skull. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vet, well, my teeth just squeaked, and vetted therapists available 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's better H-E-L-P, betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Quivering Puddle of snot and tears, which I think is the worst Cheesecake Factory appetizer. I strongly discourage you from ordering that. About her alcoholism, my drug dealer is the closest thing I have to a friend, and I don't even think he likes me very much. About her love addiction, I'm worthless now that I'm old and no one finds me attractive. About her sex addiction, a guy could have sex with me until his penis fell off, and I would be hurt that he couldn't have sex anymore. Uh, about her skin picking, I constantly pick at my face because I feel so ugly, causing permanent damage that makes me look even worse. About experiencing racial or cultural bias, 
People asking me, where are you from after I'd been given up for adoption? Spent over two years in an orphanage, ended up in a house with an alcoholic, emotionally absent sadist, and an alcoholic, emotionally abusive martyr who never considered me to be a part of the family and fetishized constantly by creepy old men with yellow fever. It's like asking a rape victim out of the blue, so what was the name of your rapist? Because they look like they had been raped at some point in their life. Um, wow. If you are listening and you have never heard the episode with Julie J., uh, listen to it. I believe it is available. I think we, I, I, I think we've even run. I yes, I know we've run it as a best of. So um, anybody that relates to that part, um, especially the part about being adopted, um, there wasn't so much the racial cultural aspect to Julie's interview, but it, it, it's a it's a great interview. Uh, and then a snapshot from her life. As I was writhing in pain during a contraction while in labor with my son, my mom got right in my face and said, I have two words for you. Birth control. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I'm here with my buddy, Chris Chow, who I've known for, what, probably eight years, ten years, something like that? Yeah, it's like a decade. A decade. A solid decade yeah. of watching each other cry on Wednesday yeah. nights. Realizing how old we've become. <laughs> Actually, the, the years of us uh, uh, sobbing in uh, support group meetings, is, is it's been a long time, I think, since all the pain and the poison yeah. came out, but... I had the privilege of uh, watching Chris come in a couple of years after I did and begin to process a lot of the things that I, that I processed in my life, a toxic mm -hmm. relationship with a mother, an inability to stand up for myself, yeah. uh, no sense of, of who I was as a person. Uh, Chris is nodding his head <laughs> up and down. And... Um, First of all, I just want to say I really appreciate your friendship. You know, you're, oh yeah, no, the same. You're, you're somebody same. that I've always felt um, comfortable opening up to, um, and I I think um, well before any I, I, I say anything more, um, talk. Let, let's go back to your childhood mm -hmm. and talk about kind of what brought you. In your uh, first generation, generation Asian American, mm -hmm. um, your parents are. Remind me again where uh... they were. Um, they were bo both born in Taiwan. Uh, well, I was born in Taiwan as well. Okay, so we were all born in Taiwan. Um, 
they came from big families. Mm-hmm. Um, our family is not that big, right. so, so it's a little different. How old were you when you moved here? Uh, first grade. So what is that? That is, what is that? Seven, six, seven? Yeah, six, seven. Yeah. Um, did you speak any English? No, no. Wow. I yeah. never knew that about you. Yeah. I, I knew yes and no. And, uh, and That's all you need. <laughs> and then my uh, my parents uh, just put us in school right away. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, that was fun. The, the, the first. What was that like? Got in a lot of trouble. You did? Yeah, because I, I didn't, because we were in a, the local public school. Um, didn't know, I didn't speak any English, so people made fun of us. And um, the only way to counter that was to, like, to be angry. Um, and I, I got suspended once, actually. What did you do? I bought, I, I, I brought a plastic uh, butter knife to school to threaten the, 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 I remember this vividly, like this girl who was just making fun of me the whole time. And I didn't know what she was saying. I just knew that it was not good. Yeah. And, um, and then she called the teacher when I pulled the, the butter knife out. And then they called my mom and I got sent home. Wow. So. Were you also tall for your age back then? Chris is, is what are you, 6'3"? 6'5". 6'5". Yeah. Um, and one of the things that when when you share your story is you will frequently talk about being a 6'5", um, Asian, bald guy. <laughs> and it's difficult to blend in when you want to just be a fly on the wall. Yeah, you know what's interesting was I, I felt unseen for most of my life. Right, like I could be in the room and everyone will see me, and I my vision or my perspective of myself was not that. So you've never felt that that you wanted to hide more. Oh, I I always wanted to hide more. Okay, so, so. maybe I was misinterpreting yeah. what, what you were. What you were sharing, so it was kind of this weird dichotomy of you don't feel seen, but it's still too much. Yeah, yeah. Like what I thought was I was being seen was I wasn't being seen, but I still felt like I didn't like I was being seen too much. Mm-hmm. And you know, and this growing up with this understanding of that we needed to be perfect to be seen, mm-hmm. um, and I was never perfect, so I felt even. M- worse about myself and not wanting to be seen because and and that seems to be um uh kind of a i don't know if the word would be stereotype but a common thing in asian households mm-hmm. um uh the drive to be successful yeah a lot of concern with what the neighbors think and not that that is you know certainly unique to uh asian culture but mm-hmm. you share a lot about that talk talk more about that yeah it's um you know i you know we were immigrants and we were told you know my my parents didn't hide that from us they told us you know you're immigrants you needed to be better um we needed to be straight a students uh we needed to be perfect and if someone says something wrong about us we don't counter that or stand up for ourselves we just you know make we don't want to make waves and I think that's very much like Asian culture early on. Oh God, what was that? Like late, early, late eighties kind of mm-hmm. where you just wanted to be the model, like the quote unquote model minority. 
which yeah. which is a myth, you know. But that's what we wanted to be. Um, you know, we wanted to go to the the best schools. Like everyone wanted to go to Berkeley. Oh, actually, let me go back one more. Um, everyone wanted to go to Lowell High School. If you're from San Francisco, you know what Lowell High School is. Mm-hmm. Um, the population that school is primarily Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously was not a good enough of a student to to actually get in there, even though the rest of my f- extended family that grew up in San Francisco all went. And that was a high school? Yeah, it was a high school. And, um, and then everyone was supposed to go to Berkeley because that's mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do. Uh, I didn't have good enough grades to go to Berkeley. Right. Uh, San Francisco uh, has a large Asian population. Do you feel like it was easier to not feel like an outsider there than in, for instance, in California, where there's still a large Asian population, but maybe not as big? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Like, I I never, um, I, you know, and I I don't know if it's good or bad in in that sense that um, growing up in San Francisco, we never felt like we were, we didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we always just felt like we were, we were American, Mm. like we were told we're American. Um, and we acted like that and which kind of in many ways is to the detriment of the culture itself because, you know, we don't, we didn't recognize us as being a different race. Like we were just part of the mass American race and, mm-hmm. you know, like don't, don't, don't make any waves. Right. How do you think specifically coming from Taiwan and its complicated relationship with China has affected kind of the mentality and attitudes of um, your family or Taiwanese families in general? Uh, I know that's kind of a broad question, but... Yeah, I think um, I think Taiwan... Well, I think it's different. I think there's two different trains of thoughts and two different groups of people in Taiwan. Like, there's one group who, you know, are... who believe they're truly there. We're separate from China. We're Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. We're a different country. And then there's another group that just believes that we're, we're still part of China. Uh, we don't want to live the way they live. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're, we're still Chinese. And that, you know, all th- if everything goes to hell, we can still go back to China. You know, and by everything goes to hell, I mean, you know, our past president, previous president, where there was a lot of Asian hate, like, if it had gotten to a place where... You know, oh, I see. You mean uh, Taiwanese-Americans. Yeah. yeah. Or just Taiwanese in general. If, um, like, if, if it comes down to it, like, we can, we're always welcome back gotcha. to Taiwan, but we have to live the way of the Taiwan, the Chinese government and not um, not the free society of Taiwan. I so. see. So how liberals feel about Canada? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so talk about um, your relationship with your parents and also in the context of your, uh, your younger brother. Uh, you have a special uh, old, needs older brother. brother. Older brother. Yeah. I like how I'm like Chris is my best friend, and then I get nine things wrong about you right out of the gate. Yeah, um, yeah so my it, it was interesting, right? I, I grew up. I was um, I didn't I, I for for a long time didn't understand what was wrong with my brother, um, but I was always told that um, my brother was my responsibility for the rest of my life. 
that um by both your parents by both my parents that you know you're you're you have to take care of your brother and um you know and for for me at the time i think i was in fifth grade or sixth grade is when that started you know i didn't understand that in addition to the responsibility your parents had or in place of the responsibility in addition well actually in addition to at the time and then in place of them once they they pass and then they just made made me keenly aware that he was my responsibility like doesn't matter what I do in my life, my brother's always going to be my responsibility, mm-hmm. and you know, and probably didn't need to be told that. I think ultimately I would have known that you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I got to take care of my family, but but it was just constantly reinforced that you know you need to make sure you're taking care of your brother. Like if we go out somewhere, take care of your brother. Um, if my parents decided to travel. Um, you know, and didn't want to take us, then it was my responsibility to take care of him. Talk about your dad and his presence or lack of. Um, so my dad early on um, was was great. Um, you know, we were a normal family. Um, you know, my when we moved here, my dad would drive me to school. Uh, once I got, I changed schools. I, I um, went from that public school that I had that incident at, and I got... Um, I went to a Catholic school, and the priest, the monsignor at the school, um, was a client of my dad's. Uh, my dad worked for um, an elevator company, and uh, they had a private elevator in the rectory. Mm-hmm. And he, my dad just happened to be the sales rep, right, for for that that account. And he and the monsignor just, you know, they chatted one day, and he said, "No, your son will come to my school." Really? Yeah. And so do you think that was a good thing? I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um so I, I, I went to so I went to St. Bridget's in, mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Um early on it was a little weird because every every I guess what is it, every quarter that we get our um report cards, mm-hmm. the Monsignor would come around to look through everyone's and hand it to you. Oh God, we did that too at my Catholic <laughs> school. The, the the most nervous day of the entire year. Yeah. And you're trying to read his face as he's handing it to you. But on top of all that stress, he would say, well, I'm going to have a conversation with your dad about this. So that was my childhood. And by what age were you fluent in English? Um, I think, yeah, I think by third grade, I think I was, I was pretty, pretty much um, able to speak and write. And so about two, I think two years. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I, I was at that place where I was able to absorb really quickly, and I think yeah. television helped. Interesting. So, Which which shows do you remember? Um, oh, like, what is that? Like Growing Pains, I think, was one. Uh, Degrassi High, remember that? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah no. But, yeah, just a couple of shows and just watching TV. So... Talk about uh, and, and at what age did your father begin traveling? Because so, um, go ahead. So uh, my freshman year of high school actually is when he moved abroad. Um, he got he took a demotion to move us to the states, mm-hmm. and um, and then he got a promotion to go to China to run um, the sales and marketing team for 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 his company for the entire Pacific Rim. So it's it was a it was a wow. substantial job. And um 
and we flew um so they flew us there every winter and summer um and it was great it was we were flying business class we were you know we stayed at a hotel um where he stayed and um and we were you know in a suite and where in china uh in a place called tianjin which mm-hmm. is kind of north of beijing Okay. And um and yeah, it was great. I can go into the hotel kitchen and tell them, "Hey, I, I like spaghetti today or something," and they wow. and they would just make it because we were long term guests. Wow! So it was it was great. Um, but it also meant that he wasn't here. Um, when from, you weren't over there, yeah, from like thirteen thirteen years old on, he wasn't he wasn't here every day. So then, let's segue into your relationship with your mom. Yeah, which meant um, I was also de- the dependent for her, like spousified. Not, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and early on, you know, you're you want to be a good son and you want to mm-hmm. do everything you can. Um, my grandma lived with us for a little bit as well, but she was at an age where it was it was an extra person to take care of. It wasn't really like hey, she could help us, mm-hmm. and um, so it was it was a lot. Like, I, I had to grow up really quickly. How many times a day as a kid or even as an adult um, would you hear a controlling or critical remark from your mother? Um, I mean, I, I even to today, I, I would hear it. Like, um, they were... Like, uh, once a day, twice a day? Yeah, probably, like, twice. Twice yeah. or three times a day. And g- um, give me uh, an example of kind of a, a typical... Oh, yeah. Uh, like, just yesterday, I was out uh, picking up dinner. Uh, it was my brother's birthday, so I went to get dinner. And um, and she felt compelled to send me a text and then call me and to tell me that I need to call the restaurant directly and not order it through one of the service because she hates it when I have to pay a fee for for the service. And, you know, and meanwhile, I'm not asking her for, to pay for it. I'm paying out of my pocket. Right. And yet she doesn't like she yes. hates it that I am spending that extra like dollar per plate on some food that, you know, that I'm ordering out of my pocket. And, you know, like in some sense, that's nice for a reminder, but, Mm -hmm. you know, like, but the way that it's done, it's like, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's just this constant nag of like, you're like, how can you be that stupid to spend that money? Right. Uh, You still live at home. Yeah. And you're how old? Uh, 46. Talk about that decision and the uh the battle that goes in on in your head um you have a girlfriend and yep. but she lives in another city she's a flight attendant yeah or, or is that the right word she's or, a, yeah she's a flight attendant um so she's when she's here we're you know she, we live together mm-hmm. um but she travels a lot okay so she comes to your family's yeah. house yeah and lives with you yeah um so why st- still be at home at, at 46? Um, I think partly it was the guilt of, like, leaving them to... Your fend- brother and your mom. Yeah, um, to fend for themselves. I mm-hmm. think some of it is where my dad would remind me, like, you know, hey, make sure you take care of your mom and, and brother. Mm-hmm. And so it's the guilt of it. Um, and Asian guilt is tough to deal with. 
Um, and then some of it, you know, is for, um, Anna and I to save money so that, um, you know, once she's, she's in the process of becoming a pilot mm -hmm. for an, trying to, you know, get her hours so she can apply to work for an airline and, um, for us to save up and, um, to then move out when at the point where she's been, she finally gets a pilot job that we can have a place of our own. And is that going to be a surprise to your parents when you move out? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Talk about the feeling that you get when you think about that. It, it, it's well, you know, it's anger. Like it, it's it's real anger that you know, like I I need to have a life, and my life my life needs to be mine, and it can't be them in it with me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yes, they're still my family and I'm obviously going to make sure they're okay. But if I move to, you know, the East coast or if I move abroad, it's not by default that they're moving with me. Like, and I, I feel like a lot of times that's, that's what the thought is. If I say, Hey, I'm moving to Singapore tomorrow, they'll get angry. And then, you know, they'll have you know their shit fit about it and then um and then they'll say like a week later my mom will say oh you know we'll move with you too and how do you feel about that and that's just that's the line that i i will not cross let them cross and do you feel like the work in the support group has enabled you to feel confident in that decision for for uh, much more now than than before like I, and what do you mean by that? Being able to uh, say no to them. Right. Um, it's definitely being able to kind of stand up for myself and mm -hmm. say, you know, like, this is my life. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to deal with it in a few weeks when. Um, so so Anne is in South Dakota right mm -hmm. now for flight training. And um, so she's not going to be able to um, to come back for Thanksgiving or be at her dad's place where her dad's 99, by the way. Um, so, um, you know, so I, my goal is that, well, then my responsibility is to go and spend time with her over the holidays, mm -hmm. um, in South Dakota. And, um, and I'm sure my mom will have a, a fit about it saying that I'm somehow leaving the family. And uh, even though we don't really celebrate Thanksgiving the way that, mm -hmm. you know, you see it on TV, but she'll still have a fit about it. One of the the things that I remember in our support group, it was when you you had a commitment. I think you were secretary of the meeting. Uh, for those of uh, you not familiar with support groups, it's probably the most important position in a support group uh, mm -hmm. because support groups are uh, autonomous. Yeah. And um, – a secretary position can be kind of delicate in that there are rules to follow. Um, and as you can imagine, a lot of sick people yeah. come into support groups and sometimes you got to, you know, lay down the law mm -hmm. firmly but lovingly. And you would do it, but your face would get super red and I could hear this rage in your voice. Am, am I portraying that accurately? Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the, the beginning of setting boundaries um, as an adult for the first time in your life and what it feels like. You know, what's interesting was um, I, I, I think it was three, I think it was like three or f 
actually it was over five or six years ago um someone decided to nominate me to be the the chair of our entire los angeles chapter mm-hmm. and um so i would run our um our monthly meetings that for the entire la group and um and there would and these were just people who were leading their meetings who mm-hmm. are, are naturally opinionated and mm-hmm. who have no boundaries mm-hmm. and and there was it was just screaming and yelling and like wow. and people hated each other there was and I was there sitting there thinking like how did how did I get myself in this right. and there were many days where I wanted to stop and just say you know i don't want it i don't need this but i i stuck it out i'm you know and i think what i did was i i held the boundary for myself in that you know like yeah at the end of the day i got to make sure this meeting actually runs Mm -hmm. and if i however way i need to get through to the people who are you know deliberately being like angry about not being heard i i got to figure out a way but i wasn't going to let them like take over and, and what did you, if anything, take out of that experience? That, you know, like I was that, you know, I had a voice and people, people listened to it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and because, you know, the other thing was like, why, why would anyone want me to run anything? And, um, and people would come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you know, I appreciate your leadership. And I'm there thinking, I, I uh, what leadership are you talking about? <laughs> But it was just, you know, I, I look at it as um, my job wasn't to try to be a dictator. Like, you know, everyone has to do it the way I do. I was trying to empower people to speak up. And um, and that's like when if I'm a secretary of a meeting and we have, you know, our business meetings, I, I just try to, you know, make sure that the room is is kind enough and give people the ability to raise their hand and say you know and get their voices heard mm-hmm. and many for and for many people i feel like that's the first time they're being heard it definitely was for me so was there a progression of was there initial anger at the at the chaos oh yeah yeah did that ever morph into something different than that and how did you deal with that inner volcano <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was there was definitely um, a couple months where I did not want to do it, um, and I would I would you know I would have that conversation that I wanted to have with the pe- the few people that were just being you know they were just being the way they were, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't have that conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Like I would have that conversation with someone else, and gotcha. you know, and what I've learned through that process is that. That's that's the easy way to do it. Just you know, you you have the conversation that you want to have, but you're not talking to the actual person. And and my change today is that you know, while it's uncomfortable, I I need to have that conversation with the person that it affects, mm-hmm. and to let them know, like you know, hey, let's try it this way. Like we're trying to hear you, but you know, maybe like lighten your tone a little so people can hear you because i feel like you have great ideas i just want people to make sure they hear you was that hard to say that instead of you fucking nut job shut your face (laughs) yeah i I think yeah there are many times where i'm like just just go away (laughs) but um i i and i think i got through to a couple of them so and i think it you know the the um Kind of the general theme of the support group that Chris and I are in is struggles with intimacy. Yeah. And, 
you know, one of the things that had never occurred to me before I came in there was that intimacy can also apply to platonic and business yeah. relationships. Yeah, very much so. Um, and in many ways, that can be the template then for a romantic relationship mm-hmm. because you have to develop communication uh, skills yeah. to um, stand up for yourself Um Take it. Take from from here, and and kind of. Yeah, you know, like I think in a normal childhood, you, you're you're taught to you know those tools. You're given those tools to to learn how to protect yourself, uh, not only physically but you know spiritually and mentally. Like you're you learn how to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, I I never was given those tools because I was never given the opportunity to say no. It was always yes. You know, like, yes, I'll do that and I'll take care of that. Um, I took that into the world and, you know, and very quickly felt burdened, overburdened and needed to figure out a way to not feel stressed. And I didn't know how to speak up for myself either. Um, And then what I learned in the rooms, like, I think the most important thing I learned in rooms is that my room support groups, the support groups yeah, yeah, is that um, how I place the order of my life needed to be me first mm-hmm. um, because I put everyone first. Some I just I still remember to this day, like and someone who had been there for a long time just asked, like you know, how do you see your life and I, like how do you what order do you put people at? And I was always like, well, I put everyone. Just want to make sure everyone's okay. And then, uh, you know, and I, you know, I'm Catholic, so I'm like, maybe I'll go to church. And, and then if I have time for myself and, you know, I try to do something for myself. Right. And he just said to me, he was like, that's the complete opposite. Like, you need to put yourself first. Like, mm-hmm. you have to have your own life. You have to know who you are. You, you have to know what you want. Mm-hmm. And before you can actually help anyone. Talk about uh, somebody listening who thinks, well, that sounds selfish. You know, yeah. putting yourself first. I mean, would it be fair to say that you're, that doesn't mean you always put yourself first, but there are times you need to be yeah. selfless and of service. Yeah. Yeah. And that was how I felt first when I heard that. Was like, well, that, that just makes me feel really selfish. Like, mm-hmm. you know, shouldn't I, you know, be a good Catholic? We're told, like, you know, you want to be, be sure to be there and help those who can't mm-hmm. help themselves. But the I think the thing that... I never was taught was like, how do I help someone if I, if I need help? Mm -hmm. Like if I don't know what I stand for or who I am as a person, then where do I come? Like, how do I approach someone that needs help when I don't know what to offer them? Don't know what my needs are, how to ask for them. Yeah. How to set boundaries. Yeah. And then when they ask me, like, well, how do you, what do you do in this situation? I, you know, my, I wouldn't have an answer because I don't know what the answer was at the time before you came into support groups what percentage of the time would you say that you felt drained and overburdened by life and responsibilities and how did what is you think that percentage is today i i think it was probably like 80 20 it was everyone else um i would that i would give up you know responsibilities that i have for myself mm-hmm. to try to be better for them and then today, I think it's more, it's more even, it's probably 50, 50, like mm-hmm. there are days where, but like there are days where, you know, I, I just can't do something and I'll just say, like, I can't get away. Like you're mm-hmm. going to have to do it yourself. Um, or, 
but I still try to be there and offer support, mm-hmm. but just not physically. Talk about if you're if you're comfortable um, the unhealthy ways that you coped with your feelings before you came into the support groups. Yeah, it's um, you know I I am grateful to for the fact that I n- never really enjoyed alcohol to the point, mm-hmm. so it was um, so I didn't have a true alcohol problem. I mean, I drank mm-hmm. to not feel right. Um, and I drank to get myself to a place that if I didn't feel that I can say the things I want and not have to worry about it. And that would be at night or during the day? Uh, it's mostly at night. Okay. Um, you know, like I ate mm-hmm. a lot. Um, I ate to feel better about myself. Um, I did, um, you know, like escorts, um, strip clubs, um, you know, I even went to a rave. So, <laughs> well, that's hitting rock bottom, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to think like, well, I don't feel anything. So then maybe this is kind of cool. Right. Like whatever, whatever you just gave me. Um, sure. Yeah. And did you attend it with friends? Did you go by yourself? What was that experience? I like? went with people who I, I thought, were friends, mm-hmm. but it was just really just kind of acquaintances that um, I wanted to be part of something. And did you feel part of something there? Did you take ecstasy? Um, I, I tried it once. Yes, it's uh, it's. I don't remember too much about it, but right. you know, it definitely didn't feel anything afterwards. But um, I th- after you took it, yeah. But I think in the moment, you kind of felt like I kind of felt like I was part of something, mm-hmm. like I was in this group like i was like well hey we're doing the same thing mm-hmm. whether it was healthy for me or not right. but i was part of something and was there physical affection which i guess is uh, kind of kind of said the hundred year old man i i hear the kids do at the rave yeah so yeah yeah like people are much more affectionate like you know it's all about peace and love and mm-hmm. not really but it's you know sure. you, you kind of just feel like well hey someone's hugging me that's great let's make out and um mm-hmm. Just like just kind of a lot of that inhibitions that I had were just all went away because, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't phys- I wasn't mentally pr- present. I was physically present, right. but I wasn't really there. Right. And the, the strip clubs, would you go there by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. It was um, it was just, you know, I think initially it was just to kind of get the hit of like having someone be interested in talking to you mm-hmm. and um some and a lot of it was was just that it wasn't really sexual like i was right. interested in like oh you know i need to you know make sure i go and date this person right but a lot of it was just for that physical that that mental intimacy mm-hmm. like just having someone pay attention and be whether they were fully interested in you or not, or just, or, you know, and forgetting sure. the fact that you're paying. Right. Um, but it, that was, the, that was, what was the draw? Um, and I, and I think it's a great example of the, the tool of fantasy for the unhealed person to yeah. cope. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. It was, um, it was very much, that was my life. Um, it was just trying to make sure that these girls were part of my life and that they were interested in me. And if it was me saying like paying for something, 
that was great because you know that was fine for me because that's how they um that's how i felt part of something mm -hmm. that uh, that was important and um and the truth is you know you go into the, a strip club it's dark for a reason you know like you can't really see who you are um there's no windows for a reason there's no mirrors yeah, there's no for mirror. for the patrons yeah <laughs> and um and then not even taking into account the fact that you know if someone if some girl is doing it they might have a reason why they're doing it, or they might be struggling with something so there was mm -hmm. so it was someone that's you know it wasn't a sober i wasn't a sober person at the time either mm -hmm. and um and you might be dealing with someone who's dealing with issues themselves mm -hmm. and then when you put two and two together that that doesn't turn out well and was the the fact that the, they might be in a position of desperation or vulnerability was that even on your radar yeah i think eventually it did uh, that um you know that that part of me came into play where um i was like you know well maybe i can offer more than just money like what if i was you know i was a shoulder to lean on mm -hmm. and um and then they would show me the affection because i helped them through some some thing mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and it was, you know, in my head, that was a relationship and, you know, that's that, that, that was my relationships for, for a long time. And talking about it now, looking back, how does that feel talking about that? If, like, I feel in many ways it was sad and pathetic. Um, you know, if I was truly honest, I felt it feels pathetic that I, that's, that's where my life was and that I was willing to pay for it. Are you able to have any empathy for? For, for me. The, for uh, me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I can see today where I was at the time was, you know, I was searching for something. I was trying to search for community and uh, friendships. And, um, and I, I think I was in so much fear of actually trying to do that in real life that this felt like the, the safer option for me. Like training wheels for, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for an intimate conversation. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, sex workers will often talk about is a lot of their clients just want to be held and talk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, um, I've, I've been told that too. Yeah. There's a saying that everything is about sex except sex. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is kind of, kind of true in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, and, the, and there've been days where I've been out where, you know, like where some girl was just staring at me and they're like, Hey, remember me? And, and it would be someone from the club, from the club, but because of the lighting issue, what mm -hmm. they were in lingerie most of the time. Mm -hmm. And it was. Like, not really something that, you know, you put in the top of your memory. Like, oh, I remember you. Sure. Definitely, you know, so. And how did you feel when they would say that? Did it ever happen when you were with Anne? No, no. Okay. No, but like I, like when I was alone uh, early on in the in the recovery rooms, mm -hmm. I, I met some of them outside towards just by, you know, sure chance. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, that still was a hit. That was like you know it made me feel good seeing yeah definitely seeing and then that was maybe important enough that mm -hmm. they remembered mm -hmm. and what was it like when you um 
made the decision to disclose to Anne in your relationship what your history looked like. You know, what was interesting was like a lot of this, none of this was really within my control. Um, she called me one day and said, you know, we needed to talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, her, one of her best friends, um, I guess, was dating at the time. And um, apparently she got matched up with me on one of the dating apps. And um, and then she obviously called Anne right away and said, you know, are you? I, or did you guys split up or something? And mm-hmm. so she, she called me and told me. And and what is essentially what happened was um, I just deleted the app off my phone. Um, I didn't realize you actually have to actually delete uh-huh. the account. I gotcha. And um, so I didn't I didn't get to like set up that conversation like, you know, hey, like, you know, let's go out for dinner and this is when I'm going to tell you. It was just, you know, God basically said it's time for you to to say this and if you're not going to do it, then we're, I'm going to make sure you do it. So she was unaware you were in a support group. Yeah, she was unaware. And then I told her, yes, you know, I would love to be in a long-term relationship with you. And, you know, I want to be exclusive. Um, but I just want to make sure you know that, you know, I go to a support group. This is my history. I am, um, I'm a better person today than than years ago. And you're getting the 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 best of what I am at the moment. And, um, I just, and I just wanted to make sure you knew that. And, and how was that received? Um, she, I think she was okay with it. I mean, we're still together. So. Yeah. Yeah. And talk about what you felt after you shared that. It, it felt relief. Like it felt like a burden kind of went away. It also felt like, um, you know, like it took, some of the the power of the addiction away mm-hmm. uh you know i think a lot of addiction is about um hiding shame and the shame of it yeah and um the more open i am about it the less power it has over me talk about what what struggles are kind of still there i mean you've you've for what how eight years you you have not engaged in the behavior that used to be addictive for you it's um you know it's still i still get to those points where um you know where i i feel the anger and and even in my relationship you know we've Mm -hmm. been together for so long um there are still days where i have a hard time just saying what I want to say mm-hmm. and uh, worried about the reaction. Um, and that's me within, that's me inside my head in that addiction part of my head. And home, home field advantage yeah. for the addiction. And um, so that's still a struggle. Um, but I think it's less so in that I get to, you know, whether I say right away, I eventually will get to, to share my feelings. And what does that sound like? What are some typical ways that you will share your feelings? Um, I'll just say, you know, like, you know, hey, like what you did, um, this is how it made me feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I want, wanted you to know that. And, um, and you know, and I'm not, I'm not asking them to, to act a certain way, but I'm just letting them know that this is how it made me feel. Yeah. And it's such a great tool because it doesn't put them... Um, it doesn't corner them. It doesn't yeah. assign, you know, some type of qualitative yeah. um, adjective to who they are as a person. Yeah. Because you can't argue with how somebody feels. Yeah. 
or at least a rational person wouldn't. Yeah. My, my mom probably would, but yeah, you know, but that's, that's a whole different story. But, but normally I, I, I'm able to share like, you know, like what you did made me feel this way. I just mm-hmm. wanted to make sure you knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. I, I don't have to say like, you know, please change. Right. Cause that's, I don't have that power uh, as much as I would like to think I can. Right. I, I just don't have that power. Uh, anything you'd like to share before we, uh, we wrap up? I, I just, you know, I think the idea of shame is really like, is still really strong, right? Like it's, um, like there are still days where I'm like, how do I tell someone like that? Hey, I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've done that. I, I didn't, you know, I don't openly say which program it is, but mm-hmm. I, I've done that in, um, like last, was it last year or the year before when there was the Asian hate going on? And, mm-hmm. um, we had a couple of meetings at work with the Asian, uh, employee group. And we're just talking about, um, and I'm, they're listening to people struggle, talking about their struggles and like how they feel about everything. And, you know, and I opened up, I just said, you know, look, I, I have to share, this is how it's making me feel. You know, I'm, I'm a sober person and, um, and if I don't like tell someone, you know, how, what their actions have affected, how their actions have affected me, then I'm around you being Asian about me, uh, having my addiction. Oh, I then, see. then I'm going to go and act out on it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, if someone tells me something about my race being the, the cause of like, say coronavirus, um, I need to speak up. And and I encourage everyone else to speak up. And has that happened to you? Uh, it hasn't. And, you know, and from, you know, luckily, you know, my height and the fact that I'm bald, uh, you know, people generally. Ign- and you throw gang signs wherever you go. Yeah, throw- <laughs> yeah, people kind of ignore, yes. like, just look past me. I'm sure they would like to. I mean, and yes. I'm not saying it'll never because I'm sure there's some. Yeah. Some guy will always want to be like, you know, hey, I'm going to go and take on the biggest guy. Right. But it's, but for me, it's more about just being able to speak up yeah. and, you know, and that's something that I never had growing up. So, and the other thing that I've heard you speak up, uh, about is your advocacy for special needs yeah, people. Yeah. Just, it, well, I mean, I think all of us are special needs to be really honest yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but just really being open and understanding for, um, those who need the help. And, um, and to not be afraid to just, you know, say what you want. And well, buddy, I love you. I'm so grateful for our friendship and, um, I appreciate you coming on and sharing yeah, your story. Thanks. This is great. I appreciate you having me on. Such a sweet man and such an important, uh, person in my life. You know, if, if, if you go through life and you have even just a half dozen, even just one person that you feel like you can share truly whatever is going on with you uh, and not feel judged, it, it, you are, that is a gift, man. That is winning the personal lottery. Many thanks to Chris. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. 
the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself LazyMan94. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm writing this survey as I sit in my car, avoiding going to work and lying to my boss about why I can't make it into work. For context, I've lost six plus jobs, probably more, in the past year due to my attendance, a large part of it being depressed and anxious. I need to get a better grip on my life, but it's hard without being able to afford therapy or medication management. Thank you for sharing that, man, and I am sorry that you're, you are in that, that place. Um, you might look into, um, uh, see if your local community uh, has free therapy. Um, you can also uh, contact therapy providers, and a lot of times they will have um, economic hardship Assistance. I think even I think BetterHelp uh, has that. Don't uh, don't quote me on that, but you might you might look into that. Um, any anyway, buddy, I'm sending you uh, a hug, man. Depression fucking blows. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Roller Coaster Christie. I don't even know what that means. I just like it. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? You are unworthy of love damaged and broken. Give up trying to practice self-love and self-care because I'll always feel this way. Boy, do a lot of us relate to having experienced that. Fuck. Thank you for that, Christy. Uh, This is an email uh, that I got from uh, Julie Mr. Johnny 18 and uh, they write, Our secret company provides male escort. Uh, We are looking for fit bad boy or good fucker who can satisfy our female clients apply here. Um, They say our company provides male escort. I don't know if that means they want me to be the sole male escort, which would be a, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. And honestly, that would run up my gas bill. So... I don't know if I'm ready to go solo. Let's get to the second part. We're looking for a fit bad boy. Well, fit, uh, that rules me out. Uh, I am not fit, nor am I well endowed. In fact, if I'm going to be honest, that area has been referred to as unfortunate by more than one woman. But now we're getting to the part good fucker. Oh, baby. One word, machine. I don't want to brag, but my bed has drag racing wheels. It's got the big fat ones on one end and then the little skinny ones on the other end. And uh, 
Yeah. You, people can hear my engine roaring on the other side of town. My bed has a rear view mirror. Because what I like to do when I'm in charge, I look in that rear view mirror and what do I, I just see dust. I just see the, the male population eating my dust. Now this sounds like I'm maybe getting a little full of myself. This, this is information has been vetted and scientifically confirmed at more than one junior college. I should also mention that my bedroom has no roof. Why? Google Earth. You got to share it with people. I'd like to teach the world to sing, and I think that's how I do it. This is from the uh, Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy, pardon me, I'm all mixed up here, who calls himself John C., and hold on. I'm all discombobulated. My my bit just got me all turned upside down. He identifies as straight. He's in his 50s. He says he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He writes, parents were very removed emotionally and provided no boundaries. My mom once told my wife, we thought it was his job to basically raise himself, and if he had any questions, he'd ask. Wow. Wow. Uh, John was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, 1983, uh, I was a junior in high school, a New England boarding school, and my 28-year-old French teacher from Paris abused me sexually. Oh, my God. That's like, that is like out of one of those awful early 80s softcore movies. Uh at the time, I thought it was great, although in hindsight, it's really fucked up. She had an apartment in one of the girls' dorms, and the only furniture she had was a mattress. The first day, she invited a fellow student, female, and I, to her apartment to get high, and after a couple of hours, the other student left with a wink, and we ended up having sex. Uh, this went on for a couple of months, and then... The only thing we did in her apartment was have sex. This introduced me to anal sex, sex which is something I have an unhealthy connection to today. At one point, she drove me home for the weekend, and we met my parents where they were having dinner, and we joined for dessert. My parents didn't say a word about it. As a parent today, I would draw a serious boundary and deal with both the teacher and my kid. It hurts my parents were not able to do this. And buddy, I hope you know my little comment at the at the beginning there about the 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 movie did not come across as as flippant and or minimizing what happened to you because that is what happened to you is fucking sexual abuse absolutely. Um, you know, and even more than um, the age thing is the power dynamic. Um, He's been emotionally abused. In my current marriage, my wife rages against me. This happens when I've done something dishonest, but at the same time, my behavior does not justify hers. 
any positive experiences with abusers. I can't think of any positive experiences with the teacher who abused me other than giving me my only A in high school French. With my wife, I've worked to develop my voice when she is raging to tell her to stop and then to walk away. That is new for me. That's good, man. That is a good tool. I think one of the best tools when you're dealing with people who are mercurial or have no boundaries uh, is to be willing, no matter where you are, to leave the room or hang up the phone or cut contact. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about other men having sex with my wife. Sharing that, this still turns me on, which I'm ashamed of. Uh, Darkest secrets. I stole a lot of money from a job. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. In the past, the most powerful sexual fantasies were all S&M, of me dominating women. That's passed now for maybe three plus years since then. It's predominantly been about other men having sex with my wife. Sharing these is a bit liberating, although nothing my therapist doesn't know. And uh, sharing that makes me feel shameful. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? And why? To my wife that I just want to restart somehow. I'm responsible for my actions, which have hurt you, and I truly regret that. And please step up and take responsibility for your actions against me. And that is such a common theme that couples struggle with, is using the other person's fuck-up as future leverage. And it is awful being in a relationship where that goes on and you tolerate it, or even worse, where neither people know that that's not healthy. It is, I, I, I can't imagine having intimacy in a relationship where um, mistakes are weaponized. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace inside my soul and self-worth. Have you shared these things with others? I have. I share with a men's group. It's positive to share, but I'm still stuck in a comfortable, one-down place with my wife, and I hate that. I hate my side of this. If you guys haven't tried couples therapy, I think it would be really good because having that objective voice in there um, can at least give your relationship a shot, a chance if it's feeling like it doesn't have a chance now. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's freeing, and I feel lighter. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? My need to be right by lying and controlling has stopped helping me. It's most likely stopped, it most likely stopped helping me a long time ago, and I'm grateful there are others who share these thoughts and experiences with me. Oh, so true. So true. Uh, this is a very fucking heavy survey. Um, it is a cornucopia of trigger warnings. So, um, that being said, let's, let's dive into this one. This is filled up by a woman who calls herself Aim Low. She identifies as bisexual. She was raised in her 30s. Uh, she says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, besides 
the requisite college-aged, got drunk for the first time and was nearly raped, though it was my first ever sexual experience and the man was 20 years my senior. I was in a relationship, in fact engaged to a man for two and a half years that was consistently sexually abusive. He was also my first, which hurts, but not as much as the literal toolbox he used to torture me. Wrenches, pliers, etc. on my nipples and vagina. There were other things he did, augmented by another hidden drawer in his bedroom with ropes, chains, whips, and paddles. I still think about it, even ten years past. I struggle with feeling like it was my fault, like I could have done more to get out of the relationship, when, in fact, I did nothing. I felt like a non-person. The pain was irrelevant, and so was I. I also still struggle with guilt of things I did to him. Similar sexual kinks like whipping, hitting, using pliers, and a wrench uh, on when I'm the least violent person in the world and it felt wrong. Uh, She writes that she's been emotionally abused. I have many vivid memories of my time with this man. Highlights uh, are waiting in bed while he drank in the other room, my headphones in, trying to get a little sleep before he would come in the room and have sex with slash torture me. Of his apologies, oh, I guess that's supposed to be or, or his apologies when he would drop to his knees in front of me looking so pathetic and sob and beg for forgiveness. He would leave me tied up on the bed for hours. Sometimes he would just be in the other room. Sometimes he would leave the apartment. I struggle with those memories still, of my body going numb, feeling like an animal, all in all a mindfuck. He tore me away from my family, turned me against my sisters, turned me into someone I'm not. I feel so much shame about that. Any positive experiences with abusers? We had some good times, but those are hard for me to admit. I've demonized him so much that letting even a sliver of goodness feels like it would break me apart. We had a great time camping in the Badlands of South Dakota one summer. It was beautiful and out of that dark bedroom where we lived. Uh, Oh, I guess she means the dark bedroom um, back where their their apartment. Uh, Oddly, one morning when I woke up before him and wandered into the cool morning air, finally able to breathe and be alone, my mom texted me that Michael Jackson had died. Long live the king. Darkest thoughts. Well... To start on a high note, I've been struggling with suicidal thoughts in the last few weeks, more so than I ever have. Seems like once I let those thoughts in, uh, they come, come more often and easily. I think about hanging myself in the fax room at work. I hate my job, and there are plenty of wires in there, a ladder, etc. These thoughts scare me. I know I'm miserable right now. I know it may pass, but I'm scared of my own brain. I've also been spending a little too much time reading porn just to fall asleep. I understand what you mean, Paul, when you said a few weeks back in the surveys from uh, a couple of years ago that it's insane to waste hours on finding the exact right eight-second clip. It's very obsessive. I read fan fiction, actually, not porn. I used to watch hentai tentacle porn stuff because I got too many viruses. 
uh, stories about rape, underage, non-consensual sex, sex with monsters and demons, anything that enters into the surreal seems to get me off, and I always imagine myself as the male. Somehow I want to know what it's like to have a penis and use it to absolutely destroy someone. I've never shared some of these fantasies with a partner. I would like to somehow. I've never had an orgasm with another person unless it was mutual masturbation. Maybe I can finally admit I need more stimulation than vanilla sex, but that is scary to me considering my history of sexual abuse. The last time I had sex, really sad sex with an old boyfriend, he did and I did talk dirty during sex, some really nasty things, and he strangled me a little, which felt amazing. Darkest Secrets December 12th of last year, I gave up on my recovery from anorexia. I consciously gave in, in a moment, in a day. It was that easy. I've since only been eating what is allowed. Very restrained by allowed, I believe she means in, you know, accordance with her uh, eating disorder, not her recovery from her eating disorder. Very restrictive and using the exercise bike 40 minutes, two times a day, five days a week. The absolutely gutting thing, the thing that fills me with such misery and rage and to the soul confusion is I haven't lost a lot of weight. How? How is that possible? About a month ago, I took a step further. I know you were wondering if that was possible. One of my ED behaviors was chewing and spitting. Last month, though I wasn't actually eating more than the minimum, I found out I had spent $844 on food, food that I chewed up and spit out. I've stopped doing that, cold turkey, because it may be the reason I haven't lost weight. I can never tell my family about this. They've been through too much already. My sister actually told me the last time I relapsed, I'm tired of your shit. I almost wish this disorder would kill me, or at least be obvious to someone on the outside somehow, so that it can be, quote, worth it, unquote. It's hard to explain, but I can tell you, Paul, that no one, not another soul in this world knows about this. I think about that as if looking at it from the outside and know how sad and lonely that is. No one, not one other person knows how I feel. It sometimes feels like too much to hold in. Hence this survey. And I think, um, I think I have corresponded with the author of this survey um, before. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I sort of answered this in the previous questions, wanting to be the man. I've only had limited experiences with girls, but I am almost sure that I might be fully gay, but I don't know, and it kills me. I'm too scared to get out there and find out. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would want to tell people how much I'm struggling. I'm so tired of being alone. But I'm sure, absolutely sure, that it would not help. It would scare people away, make things fall apart, and ruin everything. It would change how people see me. That's too much. Is that vanity? Christ. And then she... Sigh, S-I-G-H. That is your disease talking, telling you that everybody's going to run away, that it's going to make things worse, and it's going to ruin everything. No. No. I don't believe that. 
I I believe it it could it could help you that it could help you begin to heal, help you be kind to your to yourself. Um just to have a counterpoint to that mean fucking voice that is torturing you. And it might be worth considering um, EMDR therapy because, oh my God, the shit that you went through. I'm so sorry that you went through that. So sorry. What, if anything, do you wish for? A lobotomy, question mark. Sometimes that seems the only answer to what I really want, which is for this voice, the eating disorder voice, to not ever, ever say another fucking word. Also, the usual, someone to love, a family of my own, a three-season porch. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? It usually ends in hospitalization of some sort or friends distancing themselves. It is a terrible reality for me that every time I fought this thing, it's come back. Like alien, it won't die. I'm so tired of getting knocked down over and over and the music swells, and I get pats on the back. You are a fighter. You keep trying, and it feels so far from the brave little soldier that I could puke. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Amped up. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't wait. Your shit sticks around, and time slows for no man or woman. Like the Pink Floyd song, suddenly 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You may be 15, 20, 25, but you blink and you will be 35, 45, 55 with the same problems and less life to live. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, man. That was fucking heavy and I appreciate you you going deep and I, and I hope that felt... Um, beneficial for you to let some of those feelings out and then finally this is uh, from the love survey and this is filled out by Gia and uh, she writes I love when my cat sits on my chest in the morning and waits for slumber to fade from my head then meows like she's been shot for a treat I keep in the bedside drawer I love when I get in from a morning run in the rain and jump into the warm shower, then have 30 seconds of pure cold water only before I jump out. I love when I have dinners all prepared and ready to go before I get home from work. Oh, that is a great one. That or really good leftovers like Indian food. Oh, Indian food. Sweet, sweet Indian food. Is there anything better than a good chicken tiki masala? I love walking past some place and smell a flower or fragrance that reminds me of a place and time that I forgot. That is such a great one, too. I love when my son says, I love you, back to me. I love when I can overcome my insecurities, even if it's just for a minute or two. I love the peace I feel in a forest, the feel of the leaves and sticks underfoot, the smell of moss or fresh rainfall. I love hearing my friends' journeys on the forum and how they've interpreted into my world as supporting Gru as I'm too ashamed to tell the people around me I'm struggling. I love when I hear a podcast that resonates with me. 
Then you listen a second time and get the bits you missed because your brain was too busy exploding over the fact that someone out there understands you. Those are awesome. Thank you for those, Gia. Thank you. I'm so grateful when you guys fill out a survey that gives me something nice to end an episode on. It's such a relief. It is, it is truly a gift to me when I read those or the ones that um, give us an awful moment right before the montage and uh, the opening of, of this show. Speaking of, of the, the montage, um, I'd like some feedback from from any of you that feel like giving it. Do you feel that the, the montage runs too long? Uh, that I could shorten that up. I think I think the opening montage runs around like a minute, and um, even though I change it every year, uh, I'm just wondering if uh, I should shorten that up when I come out with a new one for uh, 2023. Anyway, uh, there you have it. I hope you guys got something out of this episode, and. Uh, Just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.